1948, the country of South Africa officially declared a political system of racial segregation called apartheid. The term apartheid literally means apartness. Until the early 1990s, this system was brutally enforced, removing families from their homes, establishing segregated communities, limiting not only jobs and opportunities, but also limiting personal freedoms. Citizenry of South Africa were divided into four racial categories, black, white, colored, and Indian. How a person was categorized was critical as to how they were treated and what freedoms were afforded to them. I first visited South Africa in 2004, just 10 years after Nelson Mandela was elected and apartheid officially ended. The country is stunningly beautiful, and in that visit I was impressed with how a country so bound in an evil system of discrimination could move forward. In many ways, the trajectory of forward momentum was fast and furious and extremely encouraging. In other ways, of course, the legacy of separation resulted in a huge divide between incredible wealth and profound poverty. This was devastating to witness. The visual of this divide was inescapable, inescapable because at virtually every stoplight, or robot, as they call them, people would line the side of the road. Almost exclusively people of color, men and some women, would wait all day in the blazing sun, hoping for someone to stop and offer them a job. When I study this parable of the vineyard owner and the laborers, this is the picture I see. Throngs of black South Africans waiting by the road for day labor. I have been back to South Africa probably about a dozen times since that first visit, and each time I am equally impressed and discouraged by what is happening there. One notable and dramatic change has been the economic viability of South Africa's neighbors. In the last several years, other sub-Saharan countries have experienced devastating instability and poverty, and their citizens have flocked to South Africa looking for any kind of work or resources. The current unemployment rate in South Africa is 27.6%. So a country already burdened by joblessness has ballooned into a global region besieged by desperate people. This is hard for us to imagine today in Michigan when uh, we are in what some would describe as a labor shortage. Unemployment is at a record low. Yet what is happening in countries like South Africa is common. This phenomenon is not new. The image on our bulletin alludes to this kind of waiting, this kind of hope, this kind of despair. Many places around the world are overwhelmed in this manner. In Jesus' day, paying Roman taxes created such a heavy burden of debt for those with small farms that farmers were forced off their land. Large groups of men gathered each morning with the hope of being hired for the day. Jesus' parable of the workers was not based on a fantastical idea. It was based in a reality that his listeners might have been witnessing every day. This summer at Mayflower, our sermon series on the parables is titled The Power of Parables, Eight Ways to Change Your Perspective. These ancient stories of Jesus have the ability to change the way we see God, 
the kingdom, and each other if we let them. The brilliance of Jesus is on display as he takes everyday objects and everyday people and everyday situations to illustrate how we can live a life shaped by his kingdom and his desire to redeem, reconcile, and restore our broken world. But when we look at this parable of the laborers this morning, there's an issue of justice, isn't there? To be honest, I'm not sure I've always liked this parable. It seems to be unfair. And isn't God interested in being fair? Doesn't God care about equality? This week I met with a friend who's a pastor, and she asked what parable I was preaching on this morning. And when I told her, she said, oh, I hate that one. (laughs) So what exactly is this parable about? Is it okay to say we simply don't like it? Why does it draw this kind of reaction? And how might it be both a challenge and a comfort to us this morning? As a kid, I was taught that this parable is about when a person is saved. God is the landowner, and all of the people of the earth are the laborers. Someone who has been a Christian since childhood, like me, is an example of the first to be hired. And the thief on the cross who only responds to Jesus by saying, remember me in the last hour of his life, he is an example of the last worker hired. Regardless of when a person commits his or her life to Jesus, everyone who does so gets to enter heaven. Hmm. Okay. I wanted to accept this wholeheartedly and graciously, but I still think it rubbed me the wrong way. Perhaps because the focus was on eternity, not on present reality. Jesus was and is very concerned with our present reality. So when I read this parable and picture the South African roadside lined with people begging to work, I also think of my African friends Peter and David, and I've changed their names to protect their privacy. Peter is Afrikaans. In South Africa, the white European Afrikaans people are the ones who developed the system of apartheid. It benefited them the most. The Afrikaans language was the official language of apartheid. Peter grew up under this system and even did his mandatory military service in the apartheid regime. He became deeply concerned about the injustices he witnessed, and this created deep division with his family and community. He eventually became a pastor a church planter, a professor, and also a builder. Peter has always had various building projects, partly to supplement his income and partly out of a passion for the process, but he also believes in empowering his workers. You see, Peter drives to the intersections and roadways of Johannesburg to find his labor force. He motions to the men waiting in the sun and promises them work. There are many who use this desperate labor pool for personal gain, exploiting those who are so incredibly needy. But Peter is a different kind of employer. He teaches the men a trade. He invests in them. He cares deeply for them. He takes men who have no previous building talents and methodically works with them to the point where they are proficient in construction skills. If the tile floor is not laid correctly, 
he will have the worker take it out and do it again, paying them not for a job completed, but for the hours they have worked. This may not seem like good business sense, but what Peter ends up with are not only loyal employees, but also workers who now have a marketable skill. They can seek professional jobs once Peter's projects are completed. Over the last decade or so, Peter has noticed the increasing xenophobia in South Africa toward other African nationals flooding the country out of desperation. The South Africans who were once severely and intentionally discriminated against now extend that same treatment toward others. The result is often violence. But Peter hires anyone, workers from Zimbabwe, Mozambique, Angola. He does not discriminate, he just sees people. One such man, we will call David, was found on the side of the road near Peter's house. He was not doing well. He was far from his home country, hungry and desperate. Peter started him on small projects, tiny little tasks. And David came back day after day. Any work was better than no work. In this parable, we have a landowner going back to presumably the same place over the course of the day to find workers. Who was chosen first? If you were looking for people to tend your vineyard, who would you want? Probably the healthy, the strong, the skilled. Then later in the day, if you still needed help, maybe would you take the older, the weaker ones? If you really needed help, maybe you would be willing to give foreigners or those with a deformity a shot. New Testament scholar and professor Amy Jo Levine, in her series Short Stories with Jesus, likens the workers waiting to be hired to the selection of kickball teams on a playground. The captains are like the landowners. The rest of the class gathers in a line as one by one the captains choose their players. And who is chosen first? And who is left at the end when the captains shrug and say to each other, ah, you can have him. Ah, she can go on your team. No one wants to be picked last for a team or a job. The first ones heading to work in the vineyard know that that day will be productive and that they will get paid their denarius. The ones who wait all day, what is their reality? The workers waiting in the sun have the same bills, the same anxiety, maybe even more because of their age or injury or size. Who is advocating for them? Who is making sure they have their needs met? Perhaps this is where Jesus is leading us in this parable. Perhaps this is where the kingdom breaks through. Here, Jesus demonstrates a new kind of justice. This is an interesting setup to the vineyard landowner. Clearly, paying people the same regardless of how much they work is not very savvy business practice. If this were the case, the owner would have all the workers showing up at 5 o'clock. Pay for non-performance, to take the parable literally, doesn't seem to be a recipe for business success. So, Jesus is not writing a better business memo. He's not looking, in prof looking at profit and loss or how to go from good to great. Jesus is, however, very interested in economics. Jesus is very interested in things like equality and equity and justice. 
how do we resolve this? This parable ends with, so the first will be last and the last will be first. This kingdom of heaven is a bit upside down. Here we get to wrestle with who are the first and who are the last. Based on global incomes and qualities of life, it could be argued that everyone here today in this room is considered first. We have so much to be grateful for as Americans, as Midwesterners, as Grand Rapidians. And it's nice to be first. I don't want to be last. That doesn't sound like good news. This big switch seems mean, like God is retributive. How does this represent a kind and loving God? Yet, if we are more likely to be those picked first, do we have a responsibility? Could Jesus be making a statement about indifference or maybe arrogance? The response of the first workers chosen wasn't denying that they got the promised denarius. Their concern was not with justice. It was more of an identity claim. They, those workers chosen last, are not equal to us. There was a disregard for the fact that all the workers are part of the human family. Could Jesus be making a comment about how we see ourselves? Or back to those picked last, is Jesus saying something about advocacy? What if the person picked first for the kickball team on the playground responded by advocating for the inclusion of the person likely to be last picked? What if everyone had a valued place on the team? The game might not be as competitive, I understand, but my guess is the game might be more fun. What if those with the power to include did? What if they consistently reached out to those less likely to be included? We would have a different kind of world. We might see a different kind of kingdom on display. One of compassion, perhaps, certainly one of generosity. And maybe this is the reordering of justice that Jesus is getting at. God's economy is not just for those who can afford it. When there is a place for everyone, regardless of disability or difference, we all win. Because when everyone is included, when everyone is told they are valuable and that they have a job, it is better. So we know this parable has a challenge in it for those who are often first. Who are we looking out for? How do we see others? Who are we advocating for? Jesus seems to be saying that in the kingdom of heaven, the first, the best, the winners are not necessarily the ones who continue again and again to reap the rewards life has to offer. Okay, that feels like a genuine challenge. And to be honest, it's kind of uncomfortable. But... Here's where it gets really interesting. No one is always first. Yes, the rich might never be truly financially poor. Those with elite status might maintain that status for their lifetime. But the healthy will get sick. The top athletes will lose their muscle. Our bodies will fail us. Living in a human body is a risk. Being in relationship with others is a risk. You and I will get hurt, physically, emotionally. Pain, in its many forms, 
is the only thing that is universal. There will be days, weeks, months when the first will not be first. Hardship will come. In the kingdom of heaven economy, this is when someone else who is having a season of being first gets to extend that hand of compassion, that job opportunity, that place on the team to you. My friend Peter continues to wrestle with how to be a kingdom bearer in South Africa, a country trying to right the wrongs of the past while running the risk of creating new wrongs. Peter has gone through a season of great struggle, and David has been by his side. David has become a project manager and household manager for Peter and his family. David has huge responsibilities for which he is enormously grateful. Recently, David was able to travel back to his country of origin for a visit. He returned to Peter's house, and with emotion and revelation, he said to Peter, Because of how good you have been to me, I now consider you my father. The kingdom of heaven is Peter and David against all odds becoming like family. The kingdom of heaven is upside down. It is full of compassion, justice, and love. It reveals a God with a heart of love so deep that pastor and writer Heidi DeYoung calls it unexplainable love, gratuitous, unearned, undeserved love, uneconomic love, a full day's wages for an hour's worth of work. This is how we can bring the kingdom of heaven to earth, by constantly looking at who is last and finding a spot for them at the front of the line. And when we are at the bottom, to take the hand offered and rise. The last will be first, and the first will be last. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.